you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. So I came in this morning and found this on my, on my pulpit. So, and I was thinking, this is a soapbox. Uh, <laughs> so for those who weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I got up on a soapbox a couple of times. And so someone decided to make a physical representation of a soapbox. So uh, get ready. Uh, <laughs> I'm playing. I might pull it out, though, for real. You know, just might, just might pull it out. Um, but anyway, so glad, so glad to have y'all. Man, it feels like we hadn't had church in a year. Uh, I feel like, you know, it's like you take a week off and everyone gets discombobulated and, and we forget how to, you know, do everything, it seems like. Um, but it is a long time to go without church when you only have it once a week and, and then you have to cancel. And I really hated canceling, but... Uh, at the end of it, at the end of the day, I felt like it was the right call. We did end up getting quite a lot of bad weather, uh, and just in terms of our volunteers, just to let you know, we recently ran the numbers on volunteers at this church. We have 89 volunteers. That's more than shows up in adult attendance on Sunday mornings, right? That's because everybody doesn't show up at one time. But that means we have near 100 percent volunteer participation. You have any idea like what that means? I mean seriously and that's why we've made it through troubled waters really. I mean it's leadership is only one part of it. I mean volunteerism is even more important than money in the bank. You can't do anything without volunteers and so I mean I just am so thankful um, for such a good volunteer base here. Even this week I was just when I've got the news about Johnny, I knew there might be, need to be some immediate attention paid there. And so I started texting people, you know, to make sure they knew. And then they started telling me, oh, yeah, we're already on it, you know. <laughs> and then I text Brenda. I was like, Brenda, what do you need? Well, I'm good. Somebody's already been by to see me. I've already got three phone calls. I hear dinner might be being prepared for the rest of the week. And uh, I'm good, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, what room are you in? Well, I'm in this room. You can come if you want to. I'm like, I'm not even needed. These, it's just covered. So... Uh, but I'm so thankful for that. And others have had the same experience. Uh, some of you have had surgery and uh, have went through uh, deaths in your family. It's just been really great to have such a good team of volunteers. So I just want to say uh, I thank God for that. All right, let's jump into James this morning. Uh, James chapter 3. Uh, one more shout out. I have a student with me this morning. I teach at Gardner-Webb. And uh, Aaron actually found me on Google and showed up at church this morning. So, uh, yeah, so kudos to him. You should totally change your passage to James now, whatever you're doing your paper on, because if you keep coming, you'll just have tons of free material to work with. And if I said it, I'm bound to give it a good grade, right? Like, I mean, just quote me, put footnotes all through it. Daniel said. All right, James chapter 3. Oh, we are, for those who are curious, since we missed last week, we are doing last week's lectionary reading today. Next week, we will do today's lectionary reading. 
And I'm on the fence about what to do with the final passage on James, but you'll know in time, okay? Um, I have a couple of ideas I'm rolling through in my head that it may connect with the next series, which hopefully I'll be announcing in the next couple of weeks. James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater... I just realized I shouldn't be preaching this today with one of my students here. <laughs> should be judged with greater strictness. For all, of us who, for all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the wheel of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our member the tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. Everybody's biting their tongue now, right? For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish waters? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. We live in a world with nearly unlimited access to information and what we call knowledge. This access to information is so deeply embedded in our lifestyle that we can hardly imagine life without it, right? I mean, when was the last time you, you had friends over or you were at the dinner table and you just couldn't think of the name of that actor that played in that one movie which you also can't remember the name of? And all you remember is the one line from the movie that you're trying to reference and you pull out your phones and you do what? You Google it. And often we have this response afterwards in which we say, how did we live without this before? How do we, how do we go around without this? Uh, even in terms of GPS, uh, of course, starting back in the days of MapQuest. How many of you almost died by driving off a cliff with MapQuest? All right. You know, and then we're like, how did we ever do without this? You know, and now we have phones that give very, um, very precise directions. In fact, Google, I noticed the other day, has, starting at, has started adding landmark references. So it's like, turn left on Union Road at the McDonald's. And I'm like, what? That's crazy. Um, so to help those of us who travel by landmarks rather than maps, Google has now found a way to give us that. Um, 
you know, so we, we can't even imagine life without it. And, and that's not just a sentiment, right? I mean, it's really hard today, especially folks in my generation. It's really hard to conceive of a world where we can't quickly access things, where we can't quickly access lyrics we can't remember, or check this week's weather before we go out, or, or before we plan a trip, or uh, change our flights from our phone when we need to, or, or, or play music that we want to hear, stream new music. The day that it drops, I don't even have to go and wait in a line. I can stream the music right from my phone. You know, this is the kind of world that we live in. Our access to the world's databases is ubiquitous. Our phones even do it. I don't even know why we call them phones. We, we very rarely use it as a phone anymore. We're like, somebody's calling me? What do I do? It's, they're talking out this box. Even our houses are wired, right? You know, Alexa, play Queen Bohemian Rhapsody, you know? So even our houses, we're able to like Star Trek, you know, computer. Um, you know, and, and when we went through the storm, you know, I was like, I told Crystal, I was like, you know, the worst thing about losing power is losing the internet. I can't even watch TV without the internet in my house, you know? Because I don't, I don't want to pay to get TV. So you don't have internet, you don't have TV, you can't check the weather, you know? You have to go in and change your iMessage settings because the Lord knows you can't send a text message to another iPhone user without data unless you change that. So, you know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a utility to us. It's so, uh, so much a part of our lives. We access all kinds of information throughout the entire day. And not just information that we go looking for, but also the information that comes looking for us. As we peruse our social media streams from morning to night, we learn all sorts of things we didn't set out to learn at the beginning of the day. Some things I wish we didn't learn and that I wish I hadn't learned that day. Um, these questions, though, uh, or excuse me, the questions I think that we don't ask enough, though, the, when we think about the ubiquity of our access to information, our use of information, there are some tough questions I feel like we don't ask enough. Questions like, is this healthy? Is this really good for the world? You know, we, we often just default, well, it is. This is progress. But is this really good for the world? And maybe more importantly, is this really good for our souls? Should we indiscriminately consume all the information we can just from our fingertips? And if so, what do we do with all of it? How do we apply it? What difference does it make? Why do we want to know all this stuff? Is it just so we can impress our friends with our movie knowledge and uh, our music knowledge or to win an argument on social media, right? I think another word for the culture war should be the Google Wars. Because when you don't know something, you can at least act like you know it by Googling it and copying and pasting. Now here is why those questions, I think, are so important. Not all the knowledge at our fingertips is true or even factual. I saw a Photoshop this week of a skinny Donald Trump rescuing cats from Hurricane Florence in the floodwaters. And people were sharing it as if it was actually President Donald Trump. Couldn't even see the head was like disproportionate to the thin, muscular body carrying the cats out of the flood. Nor does having access to all of this knowledge mean 
that we are knowing or learning the right things or even the factual things or even the true things or even the wholesome things. And perhaps this is one distinction we can draw between knowledge and wisdom. One way we can distinguish between the two. That knowing something does not mean being right about something. Nor does it mean that the thing we know is actually beneficial to us or the world we contribute to. Whereas wisdom is discerning the truth among the lies and then using it to affect positive change in the world. Now, knowledge and wisdom, they are connected, but they function differently. A good example of this is actually in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 31, where God talks to Moses about the craftsmen in the camp, the ones who can make things with metal. And this is what God says in verse 2 of Exodus 31. See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and notice this, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to, set and, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Notice what God claims to have endowed Bezalel with. God had endowed Bezalel with wisdom, and knowledge. Here we see that one has been both filled, filled with both knowledge and wisdom and that that combination makes him an exceptional craftsman at what he does. And how true that is if you've ever had a job where the only on-the-job training you got was on a computer or in a classroom and then you get on the job site and there's this huge disconnect between what you have in knowledge and what you're actually able to appropriate seminaries, right, we're really bad about this. You know, we do all this seminary training and then ministers go in the field and the feedback that is constantly sent is, I wasn't prepared to do this. That is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. The ability to take what is known and then utilize it in a way that is helpful and beneficial, used in a discerning way that is helpful and beneficial to ourselves and to the world at large. We might say it this way. That knowledge can be communicated with words, with our tongues. But wisdom cannot be communicated without action. Knowledge can be communicated with our words. But wisdom cannot be communicated without action. Now why is that important to our reading today? It's important to our reading today because James is much more concerned with wisdom than he is knowledge. He is much more concerned with how his readers appropriate what they know than he is with giving them more things to know, <laughs> which is so like counter-Western culture. Because we always think, well, if we're not doing it well, then we need to learn more about it, not necessarily discern how to take the knowledge we have and appropriate it better. James is concerned with how what we know and what we believe about what we know intersects with what we do and how we treat others. Now, the intersection of wisdom and knowledge, or excuse me, of knowledge and wisdom, faith and works, is a theme that is set forth early in the book of James. If you just want to kind of glance back with me in chapter, especially in this section, by the way, the section we're covering over the past couple of weeks, we see three discourses 
in which Jane kind of sets this overarching theme of the importance of wisdom and the appropriation of what we know and what we believe about what we know. Uh, the first discourse is in uh, James 2. We covered this a couple of weeks ago, where James talks about favoritism in the church, and he argues against it. And within that same context, right in the middle there of, of chapter 2, uh, James goes on a discourse about faith and works. How the, th the things we claim to believe as Christians, or the, that we know and believe as Christians, how that should then affect what we do. And that if you have faith, knowledge, belief in something, but no works, then whatever it is you have is not life-giving, it is dead. And then we have our passage this morning, in which James continues this theme of understanding how knowledge and, and wisdom intersect with life and with the way we treat others, is this discourse on our tongue or on our words. Now, unlike Paul, who we tend to be most familiar with, right? Like the, in American and, and in Protestantism, uh, Christianity, we tend to be very familiar with Paul, much more familiar with Paul than we are James. But unlike Paul, even though we're most familiar with him, James is a wisdom writer, right? This, this book is, is in many ways more like wisdom literature from the Old Testament than it is the Gospels or the Epistles in the New Testament. And wisdom writers often turn to the natural world for examples of divine truth. Uh, they don't necessarily prescribe us doctrinal propositions um, or anything like that, but instead they turn to the natural world. And in this text, James uses at least seven illustrations from the natural world that he leaves the reader to judge as, uh, in terms of the weight of what he is saying. And we've already read them, but let me just highlight them again. The seven illustrations are how a bit works in the mouths of horses, how rudders work on ships, how small fires cause big fires. Somebody ought to say amen. Right? How humans tame wild animals, how no single spring produces two kinds of water, how fig trees do not produce olives, and how grapevines do not produce grapes. As an aside, I discussed my sermon this week with Olivia, who for whatever reason seemed to be very contemplative this week. She had all kinds of theological questions for me. And then the other day she came down, she said, Dad, I want to watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I've never watched it. I said, like the show or the documentary? She's like, the show. I want to see a show. So we found a show and we watched it. In the show, Mr. Rogers talks about oranges. And he cuts an orange open and he pulls out a seed to plant his own orange tree and he puts it in the dirt and he says, uh, we're planting this orange tree. And he covers it up with dirt and he said, now, this will be an orange tree. You can't plant an orange seed and grow anything else. When you plant an orange seed, you will grow an orange tree. And Olivia lit up. She said, that's what you're preaching Sunday. <laughs> now, I said that to say, we have to be careful not to read too much into the illustrations, but to take them for what they are. And that is a universal reminder across all generations and across all ages and across all demographics that the natural world has something to teach us about the nature of things. And in this text, James is employing the natural world to teach us about the nature of our tongues and how we use them uh, in terms of how we speak and use our words and our language. And there's a couple of things we miss in our English translations of this passage and James in general. The first thing we miss in our English translation of these passages is that James is actually quoting from and drawing from several ancient Jewish wisdom traditions, not just biblically but extra-biblically as well. 
Some of this is found in Proverbs. You'll find similar language in the book of Proverbs. You'll find the similar language, these same ideas about the tongue causing a fire in particular, you'll find in other Jewish wisdom literature sources. The second thing that doesn't really carry over in our English translations is how playful James is with the, with the words in this particular passage, more so even than the rest of the book. You see things like alliteration. You see him using plays on words and, and, and kind of toying around with the way words function in Greek, which adds an interesting irony to the text because in telling his readers to beware of the dangers of language and its misuse, James uses language provocatively and shows how that even what he writes right now is volatile and open to misappropriation. That it's something that is, is language is somewhat fluid and volatile. Even in his terms of using the, the language of fire and flames and those kind of things, we see that he sees language in our words as kind of this catalytic and, and volatile thing that we have under our control. So what seems clear from this text, though, is that James is not concerned with us saying the right things necessarily, see? That's just a propositional way in which we read the text. That's a knowledge way in which we read the text. It would be surface to say James wants us to say the right things. No, it's not necessarily that. When you take the text for a whole, James is getting at something much deeper. What he really wants is for what the church says to line up with what the church does. Right? He's wanting what the church says to line up with what the church does. He starts this early on in the, in the epistle. If you go back to James 1, verses 26 and 27, we always quote the second part of this, but not the first part. In this passage in James 1, James tells us a couple of things, a couple of standards for what pure and unhypocritical religion looks like. Listen. Verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. The second one, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is emphasized again in James chapter 2, verse 12. James says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom. Notice, speak and act like those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom. And in this text, can salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? Now, I was taught at an early age that that's meant you can't cuss and praise God on Sunday morning. To which all of us said we're all doomed at this point, right? Uh, because, yeah, it, it, as James says, it's hard to keep a tight rein on the tongue. James is talking about more than just saying bad things and good things out of your mouth. He's saying that you can't say one thing and your, and your life and your behavior and your ethics as a Christian show something else. You can't come to church on Sunday and sing songs like we sang this morning about holiness and love and then go out and treat people as others whom we're supposed to hate, you see. So there, there, it is the incongruity between what we say and what we do that James is most concerned with. Um, this is where our passage starts today, reminding us 
in, in particular teachers, that they will, judge, they, they will be judged more strictly because teachers function in the realm of language. My job as a teacher is to give knowledge, not necessarily wisdom. I try. Some who want to take it, take it, and those who don't, don't, right? But my job, I am paid, I am measured by the knowledge I am able to give those students. At the end of the semester, I have to prove that my words, and, and especially on an online class, what I have typed and what I have written, that those things are getting into the minds of my students. And James says that teachers, those who function in language, are judged more strictly. Now, I don't know who does the judging here. James doesn't say God judges teachers more strictly, although I believe he probably does. I will say, though, that those who hear us definitely judge us strictly, okay? And teachers are not just those who stand behind the pulpit, but those who also in their daily lives claim to know something about God or Jesus or the gospel that others do not. And so in some ways, we might all function as teachers at one time or another. I mean, if we are witnesses to what God has done in our lives, there will be moments in which we're invited into conversations in which we will function in the world of language to impart knowledge. And James says that when you do that, you put yourself under a strict judgment. That what you say ought to, ought to in, in the best way possible, line up with what you actually do. That there needs to be some type of connection between the words and the language and the actual functioning in the world and what we bring to the world and how we treat others, which is very central to this text. You see, in James, evil is not defined necessarily as just constant foul behavior or even foul speech. No. James, evil in James, uh, he's concerned with its capricious movement between fair and foul, justice and injustice. It's the incongruity between what we say and what we do. It's, it's the springs that try to produce two kinds of water. It's the trees that produce two kinds of fruit. And James says... It ought not be this way. Now, even though we know that's true, right? Like these are great examples from the natural world. We know that apple trees, with the exception of like crazy science stuff they're doing these days, apple trees bring forth apples, orange trees bring forth oranges, grape vines bring forth grapes. We know that fresh springs bring forth fresh water and, and salt channels or salt springs bring forth brackish or salt water. Even though we know that's true, Human beings are not springs of water or fruit trees. And the difference is, we have tongues. It's, it's something that is laid into our being, James says, that causes all kinds of problems that the rest of the natural world doesn't necessarily have. And that's why we have to be mindful of it. You see, we do not always speak or behave virtuously. And I know the weight of James' words may leave us feeling condemned this morning because we're all going, man, my words don't always line up with my behaviors. Welcome to the club. And if you expect that from me, I promise you, if I pastor here long enough, I'm going to mess up and you're going to go, well, that didn't line up with what he said on Sunday. Because we are human beings, and even James admits this in James 3 verse 2, we all make mistakes, he says. In fact, he says, if you're able to actually get a hold of this and make it something that completely lines up with everything you believe and want to do in the world and it never gets out of control, if you've been able to do that, then you have mastered your entire body, James says, which no one has. So even though we know this, we are not fig trees, we're not springs, uh, we all make many mistakes. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her commentary on this passage, says, you can tell that churches are made up of human beings, after all, 
and that there's always room for one more hypocrite. <laughs> Nevertheless, James' warnings about our words and the ways in which we use language are so important for us as we live in the digital age. As we move further into what Mark Douglas calls the disinformation age, error, miscommunication, deception, slander, and libel have become so common that we expect it even from reputable sources and all but insist on it excuse me, and all but insist on it from sources that we think as disreputable. Always powerful, language reaches farther, faster in the digital age. In fact, had James written this letter today, he might have replaced the word tongue with keyboard or Twitter or social media or text message, Snapchat or email. Maybe he would have just covered them all. Moreover, James' own use of language, the way that he plays with the text, calls us to consider other ways of being wise with our words. Douglas goes on to say in his commentary, perhaps becoming wise means, at least in part, learning how to use language in ways that are both increasingly playful and increasingly pure. Now, all of that led me to some more questions, which I'm going to close with. Sometimes we feel like the task of the preacher is to close with answers. Well, I'm not going to close with answers. We're going to close with questions. Because these are questions that I'm asking my, myself now and that I'm inviting you to ask yourself as an ongoing process as you work out your own salvation. So let's hear these questions and just sit with them, okay? In, this, in these questions, the we is the church and the I is me personally. These are just some questions that rose up in my heart as I wrestled with this passage over the last couple of weeks. How do we live wisely in a world filled with a constant stream of words? How can we be aware of the manipulation of words that leads to deception? How do we participate in a world inviting us to use our words to make sense of the chaos. Where are our words best spoken? This is a big one for me. Where are our words best spoken? What rules do I want to follow in regards to how I speak or share on social media? What rules do I want to follow in terms of what words I read and listen to? How can my words bring peace and not start fires? How can I use my words to give fresh water to the thirsty and not salt water? How can my language bear the kind of fruit that others expect from one who claims to know about and follow the teachings of Jesus. What kinds of speech do I need to repent of and turn away from? Stand with me, musicians, and come and get ready. And servers as well.
if the disclaimer has not already been provided in the text and in the sermon, let it be reiterated again that James is not prescribing for us a new law in which we just have to follow all these rules and be perfect at all times. Rather, James is calling us to pay attention to the things that we often don't pay enough attention to. Our words. How quickly we speak what we think. Some of us are way worse at that than others, right? So I don't have a filter. You ever heard anybody say, I don't have a filter? He's calling us to pay attention. To pay attention to the ways in which what we say and what we do line up or don't line up and what that says to the world and what that says to the most vulnerable in the world whom we are called to love and whom we are called to bring the peace of Christ to amen we're going to receive communion together I'll read the invitation in just a moment if you're a guest with us and do not want to receive communion that's fine no pressure but we have an open table so if you're here and you would like to receive communion you're invited to receive communion in just a moment, we'll have prayer partners on either side of the front here. So if you need prayer for anything at all, make sure you find a prayer partner. We'd be happy to pray with you. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow, and you who have failed, come, because it's the Lord who invites you, and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.